are a church for all generations. We are a church strong in spirit and grounded in the Word. We are a church that excels in generosity. We are a local church that is making a global impact. Our church. Have you heard the one about the two guys that were stranded on a desert island? Their boat sank and they were stuck on a desert island. One of the guys was frantic. He was he was telling the other, "Come on, we got to do something. We got to we got to create a fire. We got to make smoke signals. We got to we got to get the word out somehow." Doing big SOS in the sand and just going crazy. But the other guy. He was just chilling. He was just hanging out under a palm tree. And the one guy that was freaking out was like, dude, what are you doing? We don't have time to just be hanging out under a palm tree. We got we to gotta do something. We, don't, someone's got to find us. And the guy just said, man, I ain't worried. I'm not worried at all. He said, man, how can you not be worried? He said, I'm not worried because I'm a tither. The guy said, what? You're a tither? What, what does that have to do with it? And he said, trust me, I'm a tither. My pastor will find us. I ain't worried about it. <laughs> Today, I want to talk to you on the subject of generosity. And we're actually in a series uh, where we're going back and we're rediscovering the values of our church, the why behind what we do. And this is week three. The first week was we are a church strong in spirit, grounded in the word. Last week, we talked about we are a church for all generations. And this week, I want to talk to you on the subject of we are a church that excels in generosity. And as I've gone back and I've studied the history of our church, you know, it started all the way back in 1949 in East Ridge. As I've gone back and studied and I've talked with people that have been around the church for a long time, one of the hallmarks, one of the things that sticks out about our church is that we are a church that is very generous. We truly do excel in this area of generosity. I have heard about the story about when our church first building was actually built in 1950, way back in 1950 when that first building was built in East Ridge. And we ran into a little bit of problem with some contractors and we ran into some issues, but they told the story about how the church family came together and how people came together and they built that first church building together. It was their blood, it was their sweat, it was their tears, it was their money. Uh, people within the church just came together and they made sure that that first church building in East Ridge was built. And it actually kind of reminds me of the same thing so many years later when we moved out of East Ridge and we moved to where we're at now uh, off of Standerford Gap Road by the mall. Uh, in 2007, man, we came to the new building, but the new building needed some work. And I'm telling you, every night for several months, this church showed up. I'm talking 30, 40 volunteers giving their time, their talent, their treasure, hands-on. They were here at this building making sure the building we have now was ready to go, and here we are today. I'm telling you, since the inception, our church has been a church that steps up to the plate when there is a need within the church. We truly are a church that is generous. And so when we talk about generosity, I think we have to start with God. When we talk about why are we generous, I think we have to start with our Creator. 
We are generous because we're created in the image of God. And God is a giver. God is generous and his creation should reflect his nature. Think about it for a few moments. God made the sun. What does the sun do? It gives us light. God made the moon. What does the moon do? It gives. God makes stars. What do stars do? They give. God makes air. Air gives. God made the clouds. They give. God makes the earth. It gives us food. God made the sea. It gives. God makes the trees. The trees give. God made the flowers. The flowers give. God made the birds. The birds give. The animals give. The plants give. Everything God makes reflects his nature. They give. God makes man. What does man do? Well, sometimes man takes rather than gives. You see, when it comes to generosity, we have to have a reset in our mind, and we have to come back and think about our Creator and who He is. And you see, when it comes to the idea of giving, you can have a scarcity mindset or an abundance mindset. What is a scarcity mindset? A scarcity mindset always sees a lack of resources. It's a distrust that God is in fact generous and that he may be even holding out on us. So we do not look to give, rather we look to hoard, we look to store up for ourselves. But you see, Jesus wants us to have an abundance mindset. He came to give life more abundantly. A mindset of abundance sees the world through God's economy, not the world's economy. It doesn't see lack. It says that all that I need, I have in God. If God takes care of the birds, the flowers, he's going to take care of me. So I can give just as God gives because there is more than enough in God's economy. I love this quote from Stanley Hauerwas. He says, abundance, not scarcity, is the mark of God's care for creation. But our desire to live without fear cannot help but create a world of fear constituted by the assumption that there is never enough. Such a world cannot help but be a world of injustice and violence because it is assumed that under the conditions of scarcity, our only chance for survival is to have more. Listen, church, we are a church that is strong. We excel in generosity. And the reason we can excel in generosity is because we've had a revelation in our mind that God is enough, that he is our supplier, that we have all that we need in him. And if our church is going to continue to be the church it's been for 72 years, a new generation has to pick up the idea that we are generous because God is generous. So I want to give you three areas today where our generosity should go to. We should, it's generosity is like, it's like a river. It has a, we have a source, it comes from God, but it doesn't stop with us. It, it actually, it, it, we pour out into others. And so I want to tell you where our generosity should go. It should go towards God, number one. It should go towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And number three, it goes out into the world. And then I want to end today with just some brief ways about how we can be generous. So where, does, where should our generosity flow to? And this one might seem different to you, but I think first and foremost, generosity from us must flow towards God. But what can you actually give God? When everything comes from God, even your very breath, what can you give God? What do you give the God who has everything? The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What can you give him? The answer is nothing. Nothing. God doesn't need anything from you. Everything is already his, 
and everything you have, he gave it to he gave it to you to begin with. So he doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need a sin offering. You can't repay your own sins. That's already been done through Christ. He's already paid for your sins. Nothing you can do can add to God, really. You cannot repay God. So what are we to do? How, how should we live? How do we be generous towards God? I think the New Testament gives us, uh, it gives us a clue. And I just want to read a few scriptures. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Hebrews 13, 15 says this, Through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That's the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, it says this, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How can we be generous towards God? I believe we are generous towards God. We can't give him really anything except one thing, and that is thanks. Thanks. Thanksgiving. We can overflow with thanksgiving. We should be spilling out with the good things of God. People shouldn't have to stir us up when we come to church to lift our hands and to say, tell God, thank you. But sometimes we have to be conjoled a little bit. Why? Because sometimes we get spiritual amnesia. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have moments of spiritual amnesia. You know, this happened to me just the other day. It comes to me in the form of comparison. Sometimes I look at someone else's life and I see the way God is blessing them. And when I get so focused on the way God is blessing them, all of a sudden I forgot all the ways that God has blessed me. I look at the things that God has put in someone else's hand and I forget what he's put in my hand. I neglect what he's given me. Come on, God has given us each something. Think about it. God gave Abraham a son. God gave Moses a staff or a rod. God gave David a slingshot. God gave Elisha the cloak or the mantle of Elijah. God God gave Samson supernatural strength. Everybody, God gave them something to use for the kingdom of God, but it was all different. And sometimes we get so busy looking at what God has given someone else that we forget everything that God has given to us. We need to take a moment and we need to do what Psalms 103 says. The psalmist in Psalm 103, he he begins to talk to himself and he says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not his benefits. (laughs) You know, I like a few things about the scripture. Number one, I like that David is talking to himself. He's talking to himself. You know, so often we are listening to ourselves rather than talking to ourselves. And I'm going to tell you what, you need to talk to yourself more than you listen to yourself. You need to speak the word of God to yourself more than you just let your thoughts run rampant and go off on some tangent. You need to be speaking to yourself, meditating to yourself, the things in the words of God. David has to tell himself, self, today you're going to bless the Lord. Today you're going to rehearse and remember all the good things that God has done for you. Forget not his benefits. You see, it's so easy for us to forget 
the benefits of God and everything he's done for us. I think about the children of Israel. You know, God splits a sea for them. (laughs) He splits a sea. They walk on dry ground. Over a million people walk on dry ground through the Red Sea. And they turn around and look, and the sea collapses on their enemies. So in one day, God supernaturally delivers them and destroys their enemies all in one day. And they do. They have a little praise party, and it's great. But if you keep reading, it's not very long afterwards. Actually, it's only three days. They get three days into their journey. And the Bible says about the children of Israel, they start to grumble. They start to complain. They complain about, oh, God, we're going to die. We don't have any water. Oh, we're going to die. We don't have any food. They're only three days from God parting an entire sea. And they're already grumbling and complaining like God's going to forget them. (laughs) Can I tell you what? We do the same thing. We do it all the time. God provides for us every day in supernatural ways. He cares for us. He's done so many little things for us. And we forget them so easily. And when we come up against a hardship, we come up against a trial, we think, oh, God's forgotten about us. He doesn't love us like he loves so-and-so. He's blessing someone else so much. I wish God would bless me like that. And we have spiritual amnesia, and we forget all the good things that God has done for us. When was the last time you just generously gave praise and thanks to God for something in your life? You see, when you begin to praise him, all of a sudden, you begin to remember all the good things that he's done for you. I'm telling you, that's when your perspective changes. That's when your mind changes. That's when you realize, man, you are so blessed. Your world is enlarged when you praise God. And when you have an attitude of gratitude, it leads to generosity. But see, when you don't praise God, when you're not generous towards God, then you will become greedy. You'll become hoard. You'll have that scarcity mindset. I'm challenging us today to be generous towards God. You can thank him today for salvation. He forgives all of your sin. You can thank him for healing. The psalmist says he heals all my diseases. You can thank him for redemption. He rescued you and restored your life. Transformation. He gives you a new heart and right desires. He provides all of your needs. He blesses us. Somebody needs to thank God today. Generosity towards God. That's the first one. Number two, we have generosity towards one another. Galatians 10, 10 says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially those who are of the household of faith. You see, the way we treat one another is vitally important to Jesus. In fact, it's deathly serious to Jesus. We see this in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus tells a story, and it's a story about the very end of all things. It's a story about judgment. It says that Jesus, in the last day, separates the sheep from the goats. And he looks at the sheep, and he tells them, hey, listen, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the sheep say, what are you talking about, Jesus? Wait, when did we do this for you? When did we see you naked and hungry and clothe you and visit you and feed you? And this is Jesus' response. He says this, Truly I say to you, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now we have to stop for just a second because we have to see what Jesus is saying. Sometimes we read the scripture and we think, 
Oh, it means that everybody who's sick or hungry or thirsty, we should be out there doing stuff for them. And I'm not against that. We should be. But if you really want to look at the context and really look at what Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, when one of my brothers, when one of my brethren were in need, you came and you helped them. You see, brethren, it's Adolfo in the Greek. When it's used, it's specifically referring to Jesus' disciples. Remember, he said, who are my brethren? Who's my brothers? Who's my sisters? Those who do the will of my father. When Jesus said, you did it to one of these brothers or sisters of mine, he's talking about how we treat other brothers and sisters in Christ. And he said, when you did it to one of the least of my disciples, you really were doing it unto me. He talks about those who are the least, and it kind of harkens back when Jesus, remember when someone asked Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And he takes a little child and he brings it to himself, and he says, really the greatest in the kingdom is this, it's these, the ones who are the least in the kingdom, these little children. Unless you have the faith like a child, you won't even enter the kingdom of God. Who are the greatest? In our eyes, it's not the people that have the greatest speaking gifts, maybe, or they seem the most talented, but really in Jesus' eyes, the greatest are the least. The people who seem least important are the greatest to Jesus. Why? Because they've been identified with Jesus. And you see, it may be that the ones we see the most insignificant are actually the most significant in God's eyes. We're probably going to be surprised when we get to heaven. We're going to see what God honors versus what man honors. And Jesus said, any brother or sister of mine that was insignificant and you serve them, you came and you unselfishly laid down your life for them. You came and, and when they were sick, you visited them and you treated them well and you cared for them when no one else would care for them. I'm telling you, you really cared for me. You see, the, the early church was well known for acts of charity and generosity. They were mocked even for their radical generosity. There was an ancient pagan satirist. His name was Lucian. He was actually making fun of Christians. This is what he said. He said, the earnestness with which Christians help one another in their needs is incredible. They spare themselves nothing for this end. Their first lawgiver put it into their heads that they were all brethren. He's making fun of us. This was in 200 AD. He's making fun of Christians because it was so crazy to the, to the public's eye the way Christian brothers and sister, sisters loved each other. And you see, when we're loving one another, we're actually really loving Jesus. That's what he tells us. And so the New Testament, listen, the New Testament, Christianity cannot be lived out in isolation. You can't care for someone and not be in their lives. You see, the way the church is designed, it's designed where we are to be there for one another. We are to live generously towards one another. You can't shut yourself off from the body of Christ and live out the 59 one another's. Come on, 59 times in the New Testament, it tells us how we are to live with one another, right? We're to be at peace with one another. We're to wash one another's feet. We're to be devoted to each other in brotherly love. We're to honor one another. We're to live in harmony with one another. We're to carry one another's burdens. We're to forgive one another. We're not to lie to one another. We submit to one another. We encourage one another. We don't grumble or slander one another. <laughs> we offer hospitality to one another. So many one another statements. 
We, we See, when we live generously towards God and we praise Him and we realize how generous He is, then we realize our call is to be generous with one another and to be there for one another. And Jesus actually says, it's the way that we care and love for one another that will actually be the witness to the world that He really is the Messiah. When you do it to the least of one of his disciples, you're doing it unto him. So we have generosity towards God. We have generosity towards each other. And here's the last one, generosity towards the world. You see, since the very beginning of Christianity, the hallmark and distinction for us is generosity. How did this movement survive? You have to put yourself back in first century Palestine, first century Rome. Here's a ragtag group of people. They don't have any buildings. They don't have any military power. They don't have a government. They follow a guy who they claimed is alive, but no one knows where he is. Oh, he's up in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. You know, they're following an invisible guy. (laughs) How is it that the first church actually survived? The reason a lot of scholars believe it didn't die out was because One reason was this hallmark of generosity. They were so different in the way that they lived their life. You see, in Roman times, there was a word. It was liberalitas, liberalitas. And it basically, it was the concept of generosity, but not how you and I think of generosity. This was the concept. It was this. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You do for me, and I'll do for you. In fact, that word liberalitas, it was stamped on Roman coins. And an emperor would come through the streets and he would be tossing out coins to people and throwing coins to people. And even the crowds would shout, liberalitas, liberalitas. And basically what they were saying is, emperor, you have provided for us. You have done for us. So now we're going to return that loyalty and now do for you. We're going to live our life for you because you have done for us. And in, in that time, if you knew somebody had the power to do something really good for you, what you would want to do is do something good for them first. That way, they owe you one. But you see, when you live your life like that, when an economy, when a world is based around, hey, you do for others and then they will do for you, what happens is those who can't do for anybody end up getting overlooked. Why do you think the Bible talks so much about caring for orphans and widows? It's because in Jesus' day, orphans and widows, they were penniless and powerless. They could not help you. They could not help anybody. Therefore, because they couldn't help anybody, no one was there to help them. It was a waste of time to help a widow or an orphan. And nobody would fault you for that mindset. Nobody would say, oh, I can't believe they don't care for orphans and widows. They're so evil and vile. They should take care of those who can't take care of themselves. That was not a thing. In Jesus' day, it was actually good business. It was great economics. You take care of those who can take care of you. But here comes Jesus, and he's helping the orphan and the widow. He's helping the outcast. And you see, he said, if you want to be like God, you are most like God when you do for those who cannot do for you. You're most like God when you love your enemies. He said evil people can love someone when they do good for them. Anybody can do that. But you're most like your Father in heaven when you give to those who cannot give back. There's a book by a guy named Tom Holland. I read it this year. It's called Dominion. It's a very dense, it's a very thick book. But if you're looking for a book on uh, the Christian 
narrative, the Christian history, how Christianity took over the world. It's written by this guy, Tom Holland, who, by the way, Tom's not even a believer. But man, he hits the nail on the head. You see, Tom, he bases his book around this thought that actually came from Frederick Nietzsche. You ever heard of Nietzsche? Right? He's a pretty famous atheist. Well, in Nietzsche's day, he noticed the Enlightenment, the, the European Enlightenment, that people were rejecting Christianity and they were thinking of themselves as uh, scientific free thinkers. So they, they started to live their life without God. But, you know, they wanted the kingdom without the king. This is what Nietzsche argued. He said, this is what he told the people. He said, you guys, you think you're living without God, but here's the truth. You still believe in human rights, the equal dignity of every person. You believe in the value of the poor and the weak, the necessity for caring and advocating for them all. You believe that love is the greatest value. We should forgive our opponents. You believe in moral absolutes, that some things are good and some things are evil, and and especially the oppression of the powerless. You believe that's wrong. And Nietzsche said, all of these things, I know you're trying to live your life without God, but all of these things are uniquely Christian. They didn't come from the Eastern cultures or Greeks or Romans. The Greeks and Romans laughed at ideas like that. Uh, The Franks and the Germans, they thought the ethic of forgiving one's enemies and honoring the poor was weak, and you would be completely done away with as a society if you do that. And, And Nietzsche said this, those ideas that you hold to, The only way those ideas are true is if there is a universal, single, personal God who created all beings in his image with the Savior who came and died and sacrificial love. That is the worldview that brought about all those things that you still believe in. And it it doesn't make sense. If it's really all here by accident, if it's survival by the fittest, then there are no moral absolutes. And life, if anything, must be about power and the mastery of others, not love. So Nietzsche declared to the people, even Nietzsche was, he was not really, he wasn't a believer in God, but he's letting all the other people who think, oh, you're not going to believe in God, but the society you're building is based around all the ideas of God. His love for people. You see, it was the Christians who changed the world with their generosity. When a plague would come through, everyone would leave, but it was the Christians who would stay behind. Pagans despised the poor and the weak, while Christians poured themselves out for the sick and the orphan and the poor and abandoned infants. And as a result, the masses turned to Christ. That generosity to the needy was unique alone to the Christian faith. You see, when we have a generosity that goes out to the world, it opens the world up to the kingdom of God. I think about a man named Pacomius. Pacomius was in a Roman prison. There was a severe famine in Rome. And you know, when there's a famine and there's no food, the last people to get fed are prisoners. One night, people came to Pacomius's prison cell, and they slid him bread through the bars. And they didn't just come one night. They kept coming night after night. These people would come and give bread to Pacomius and the other fellow prisoners. And so he got curious. He said, who are these people? He wanted to know. Come to find out they were known as Galileans or Christians or follower of the way. And you know, when Pacomius got out of prison, he went and he found these Galileans. And he ended up giving his life to Christ and he became a great leader in the early church. He became so, such a great leader that the Catholic church now celebrates him as a saint. How did Pacomius go from being a prisoner to a saint? The answer is the generosity 
of some other believers, that they had come in contact with a generous God, and so they, in turn, were being generous. Generosity is what makes us appealing to the world, and we've got to recapture this generosity. This is how we change the world. So how can we be generous? I want to take the last seven to ten minutes here and just talk about the how. That's the why. That's the why. You know, why are we generous? Because God is generous. To whom should we be generous? But now I want to talk about how. Let's get practical here. How can we be generous? Number one, we're generous with our time. We're generous with our time. The most valuable resource in the world right now is attention. We live in what is known as the attention economy. Retailers know this. Businesses know this. Tech people know this. If they can have your attention, they can have your money. (laughs) So we don't lack for information. We have a lot of information. But I love this quote from Herbert Simon in 1977. He said, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. If there's one thing that is a scarce, valuable resource right now, it is your attention. Let me ask you a question, church. What are you giving your attention to? What has your eyes? What has your mind? Are you giving it to frivolous things? We must recapture our attention. We must be, begin to be able to focus again. We, we got to quit being so distracted with everything that's around us. Everybody wants your time and your attention. We've got to take it back. We've got to take control of our lives. And we need to ask ourselves today, who needs our attention? Who is it that you can serve, you can be generous to with your attention? You know who I'm thankful for in our church? I'm thankful for our C group leaders. Everybody I know is busy right now. Everybody. If you ask someone, hey man, how's it going? Oh, just busy. So busy. Everyone's busy. Everyone's running around doing so many things. But I want to tell you who I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for our C group leaders who take, they work, they have kids, they have jobs, they have family, but they take time out of their week to say, you know what, I'm going to host a small group at my house or I'm going to host a small group. I'm going to come serve teens on Sunday night or Sunday morning. And, and they give of their time. I'm telling you, that is a valuable resource. That is generous. When you give someone your time, I'm telling you, you are being generous. We have to revert our attention back to the things of the kingdom. Number two, we can be generous with our talent. God has given us each a gift. He's given us a grace. You have a divine enablement. You're good at something. I feel like I'm okay. I feel like I'm good at speaking. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm communicating the gospel, but you're good at something. You have a grace. You're enabled to, to maybe organize or serve or sweep, or maybe you can teach. Like There is something, there is a grace on your life. God has given us all something to serve one another with the kingdom of God. The question is, who are you serving with your talent? How are you being generous with the grace that God has given you? I'm so thankful for the people with the gift of hospitality. When they walk in the doors at church, there's a smiling face and someone's there to greet people and make them feel welcome, make them say hello. I'm, I'm so glad there's people that give of their, they give of their talent of teaching and they work well with kids and they're making sure kids know the, the scriptures and they know the Bible. I'm so thankful for those that are just giving their talent for the Lord. So who are you giving your attention to? Who are you serving with your talent? Here's the next one. 
We can be generous with our touch. You can impact someone's life with a simple touch. A simple text, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm in your corner. It doesn't cost you a penny. (laughs) Who's on your mind today? Who do you need to touch? This is something I've been trying to do lately. I've been trying to think of people. Maybe the Holy Spirit keeps bringing someone back to your memory, back to your mind. Maybe you haven't seen them in a while. I challenge you, reach out, text that person, call that person. You never know what one little touch can do. And, I, you know, I, I had a friend this week I talked to. He's a, an awesome guy, amazing man. But, man, he's gone through such a hard time, and he's struggling right now. And this is a guy who's strong, and, and I can think of so many people. We're in such a hard season. So many people need encouragement right now. They need to be seen. <laughs> they need to know someone notices them. That they're, When they're not there, someone notices them. And I can't tell you what it does to people when we serve them with our touch. And here's the last one. We're generous with our treasure. Our treasure. Listen, I've gone this whole message on generosity. Not one time mentioned money, all right? But here it is. got to talk about money. Why? Because if you follow Jesus... Jesus has a lot to say about the things we don't like to talk about. Number one, sex. Number two, power. And number three, money. If you follow Jesus long enough, he is going to get in your life about these areas. What you do with your sexuality, what you do with the power that you have, and what you do with the money that you have. Discipleship is all about him getting up close and personal in these areas of your life. You see, you got to learn to trust him with your money generosity. So real quick, I want to give you a plan for your money. (laughs) Three P's really quick when it comes to generosity. These P's have helped me. Number one, the first P, priority giving. This is how we can be generous with our money. This is priority giving. What does that mean? It means you don't wait until everything is said and done. You've gone on vacation. You've, 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 you've got all your hobbies out of the way, and then you give God what's left over. No, priority giving says, I'm going to give God what's first. I'm going to give God my best. I'm going to make sure God is the first that has my money, not my leftovers, but my first. You know, it's like Sunday. Why do we give God the first day of the week? Because we're putting him back as Lord over our lives, over our time. We're giving him our first, the first day of the week. It's the same with our money. We give him the first. Number two, percentage giving. Percentage giving. So we got priority giving. Now we got percentage giving. God's not enamored by anyone's number of giving. He actually looks at percentages. (laughs) You can see the story in Luke where the lady who was poor, she comes to the temple and she gives two little pennies. And there are other people that are giving masses amounts of money at the temple. And Jesus says, that woman right there gave more than all the other people. How could Jesus say that? Because he's looking at percentages. He's not looking at whole numbers. You know, I believe in the tithe. I believe in the tithe. What is the tithe? In the Old Testament, the Bible talks about the tithe. It's mentioned seven times in the New Testament as well. Tithe means tenth, 10%. The scriptures talk about a tithe belongs to, to the Lord. And you know, some people get hung up on this idea of the tithe. They say, well, that's Old Testament. And you're right. It is Old Testament. But here's what Paul teaches us about the Old Testament law. Paul says that the Old Testament law is just a tutor or a teacher until the time of Christ. So under the law, the tithe, 10%, was the minimum 
requirement. The, the tithe was supposed to be a tutor that teaches us in giving. You see, for Christians, really, I believe tithing is the minimal of the spiritual discipline. I had a, I had a professor who said it this way, tithing is simply child's play in the, new, in the new covenant. You see, Jesus is our teacher now. And what does Jesus say about giving? Luke 14, he says, So then, none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all of his own possessions. Wow. The law, the tutor only required 10%, but Jesus demands all, 100%. Here's the truth. Why don't we talk about the tithe? The truth is, America, most American Christians don't even do the minimum. This is, you know, this is all the cold hard facts. No, no condemnation on anyone today. The average American Christian gives 2 to 3% of their income to churches slash charity. 2 to 3%. We're not even doing the minimum. Listen, I believe in the tithe. I believe you can test God on this. Test him. See if he won't provide. You see, I've gotten to a point in my life where I realize I'm better off living on the 90% than I am the 100%. Give God the 10. Learn to live on the 90 and watch how God blesses you. I believe that this is about stewardship. And I believe God wants to teach us about stewardship. Some people say, I I can't give. I don't have anything to give. And that's right. It's because we haven't been good stewards of our money. We have no margin to live on. In the Old Testament, the, the Bible says that when you plant your fields, that you weren't supposed to pick all the harvest. There was a section of the field that you weren't supposed to touch. When you get the olives off the tree, you don't get every single olive off the tree. You leave some there. You were supposed to leave a margin there so you could help those who are in need. The reason many of us can't help is because we have no margin in our life, and that's not good stewardship. I'm, and this might be hard teaching, hard pastoring, but I'm telling you, Jesus cares about your stewardship. He cares about how you, how you handle your money. He cares about your life, and you need margin so you can be a giver. Lastly, progressive giving. There are times when God will test you He's going to ask you to give and live off of way less than you make. Say it like this. Sometimes God blesses you not to raise your standard of living, but he will bless you to raise your standard of giving. Here's what I know about people that are super generous and they're big givers, is that when you are a giver, your world actually gets bigger, not smaller. When you refresh others, God will refresh you. Paul says it like this, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. He says, this is the point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Listen, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You see, when you give big, you know what happens? God enlarges your world. He enlarges you. That's what Paul said. When you start sowing seed, God's going to give you more seed. And that's what I truly believe that. I truly believe 
that the most, some of the most blessed people I know, they're not blessed because they're stingy and they hoard it. They're blessed because they're good stewards and because they're big givers. And God just keeps on blessing them. Listen, we are a church that excels in generosity. I want to close today with really just an example of how generous you are as a church. You know, every year at the end of the year, we do a big offering. We take up an offering for needs that are really beyond this house. And it's a way for us to excel in generosity. And you know what? I have never once, since I've been the pastor, when I take up an offering, I've never one time been disappointed. I'm actually overwhelmed at the generosity of this church. I want to tell you, in the past three years, at the end of the year offering, in the past three years, church, you have given over $227,000 in the last three years. You've given to build dorms at Dream Central Africa. You've planted four churches in Fiji. You've built buildings in Belize. You've given shoes and food to kids in Kenya. We've helped here in our local area, Shepherd's Arm Rescue Mission that helps single moms. We help Choices of Chattanooga who helps women that are, have unplanned pregnancies and they don't know what to do. Cure International, you've helped forward housing in Sri Lanka. Even in our own house, we've been able to help widows and people that have fallen on hard times. Over $20,000 just to our own church members. And then when the tornadoes hit in 2020, you gave almost $20,000 just for that one thing. Church, you excel in generosity. And I just want to say thank you for being a church that does that. And I want us to continue to excel in this area. So coming up really soon, I want you to go ahead and start praying. What will the Lord have you do? We're doing the end of the year offering soon, the week before Thanksgiving, and we're calling it the Share Hope Offering because our mission is we pursue God's presence, we grow in Christ's image, and we share the hope of Jesus with all people. One of the ways we can share hope is by generous giving, by helping people that are in need. And so I want you to start praying, start thinking about how we can excel this year in 2021 with generosity. So start preparing, start praying, start asking the Lord. The Share Hope offering is coming up. I want to challenge you today. Maybe God really spoke to you. Maybe he's challenging you in your heart. Maybe, maybe he's challenging you on your stewardship. Maybe he's challenging you to, hey man, it's time to put God first in your finances. You've done it in other areas, but hey, it's time to get it right in the areas of finances. I believe our church has a bright future and a bright hope because we are a church that excels in generosity. Father, I pray for your people today. God, I pray you would help us to be generous towards you, towards one another, and towards the world. God, help us to be generous with our time, our talent, our touch, and our treasure. God, let the Crossing Church be a church that shares the hope of Jesus with all people because we are generous with those things in our life. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Hey church, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Hey, I'd love to see you at nine or 11 in the building. I'd love to shake your hand, hug your neck. Uh, also, don't forget we're here 10 a.m. Always Virtual Church. And uh, next week after service, we're actually gonna have just a little fall party. Not a big one, just a little one. We'll have some, a little bit of snacks, a jump house for the kids right after church, nine and 11, both services. We'll see you soon.